Join me in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. As we continue our study of passing through. How it is that we must live as followers of Jesus Christ, even in a world that is hostile toward us. After much of Peter's talk about being exiles and pilgrims, he's now careful to remind us of something that should be a great encouragement to us. That being, we are all in this together. You're not alone in living the Christian life. You're not alone in the battle against temptation. You're not alone in the struggle with worldliness that you face in your workplace, in your neighborhood, from your family at times. We're all in this together. And Peter's emphasis in this next paragraph is about the togetherness of our pilgrim journey. So we're picturing Pilgrim's Progress, the story that many of you know. And now we're envisioning those times when others joined Christian on that journey. And they were reminded, we're all in this together. As disciples individually called to follow Jesus, we're all in this together. As individual parts of a body, we're all in this together. We weep with those who weep, though ours may not be a season of weeping, because we're all in this together. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing, even though our hearts may be heavy and our lives may be hard at the moment. But we do that because we're all in this together. The New Testament has dozens of commands on how to treat one another because of this truth. We are all in this together. And now Peter reminds us that though we may be harassed, slandered, hated, even persecuted, as pilgrims, we are all in this together. Listen to God's word to us through Peter by the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. As pilgrims, we're all in this together. That being true, it would be helpful for each one of us to ask this question. How do I contribute to the pilgrim community? And that's not like a rhetorical question that just needs to be like, 
some kind of theory or something. No, literally, ask yourself, how do I contribute to the community of pilgrims? If we're all in this together, and by God's varied grace, I'm a part of this community, how do I contribute? That's a question we must wrestle with. Fill in the blanks on your outline and glean some things, but above all else, wrestle with how do I contribute to the reality of, as a church, we're all in this together. Now, this is a great text for all of us, but it works particularly well as a challenge to our graduates. We want to recognize them at the end of the service. Young people, as you continue to grow into what society calls adulthood, you must know that God is calling you to a greater responsibility in the community of God's church. It's not that all the fun and games are over. Some of us adults refuse to get rid of the fun and games. We're not saying life ends and now it's all hard work and slaving in the salt mines. We're simply saying that you've reached a point of maturity in your life where it is time to recognize that you too are included in this great reality of we're all in this together. As young adults, you need to take full responsibility for your godliness, for your growth in the word, for your appetite for spiritual things. We know how it is. As older teens, you clamor for more and more independence and responsibility. Well, the time has come. It's time for you to step up and not just paying your share of the car insurance, but in carrying your weight in the body of Christ, in doing what God has gifted you to do to advance his kingdom. You need to be reckoning with more than just how do I start making money or what's my career, but you must also reckon with what has God equipped me to do in order for his name to be made great among the nations. So hear this message as your graduation challenge. For the rest of you who can't even remember how long ago you graduated, you just hear it as the Sunday sermon, all right? Our text begins with a reference to the end of all things. The Bible in the New Testament, since the time of Christ, has been using this language of the last days. So there is nothing dramatic here in Peter saying, we're in the last days. When you hear a preacher trying to mount some kind of drama by talking about the last days, just sit back and yawn a little bit because that's been true for 2,000 years now. Since the coming of Christ and his work at that cross that we sang about and his great resurrection, from that point in church history, the church has recognized that there isn't anything else left to happen in God's timetable. He's going to come again. That's what Christ said when he ascended. So the apostles felt very comfortable in saying, okay, we're in that last kind of chunk of time. And the only thing we're waiting for is the return of Christ. So that's how they reference last days or last times when you see that in the New Testament. It's not a, a watch, watching, time counting kind of last days. It's a schedule of events. And in God's plan, there was the first coming of Christ in, in, in mercy 
in the incarnation of Christ to accomplish our redemption. And the next event is Christ coming in his majesty and glory and ultimately his judgment. So Paul or Peter's point in saying the end of all things is at hand, therefore live this way. He's simply saying live today in light of the fact that today really does matter in light of eternity. The end is coming, and if Christ is coming, and that is significant and important, then be faithful today. And what you will find is that everywhere the New Testament talks about this, the last days of the coming of Christ, it is always designed to motivate God's people to readiness, to faithfulness. Never will you find the instruction that we need to have conferences and be predicting exactly how much time is left or that, that's all speculation. Jesus, while he was here on earth, voluntarily limited by his humanity, said that he didn't even know the times and the seasons of that work of God in the second coming. So we need not spend our days speculating about when it's going to happen. Rather, we should spend every day giving some kind of thought to, am I faithful today? If the master of the house returned today, would he find his house in order? Based on the parable in the Gospels. So Peter is calling us to faithfulness. And now he unfolds something of what that faithfulness would look like. What does it look like for faithful pilgrims who were all in this together to be ready for the end? Well, let me show you from our text four ways that you can contribute to the pilgrim community. And I have to admit, our text today was a bit refreshing. The last couple of weeks, we've had some real challenges of interpretation. Things like preaching to the spirits in prison or being saved through baptism that corresponds to the flood, or even last week in preaching to the dead. Those are some tough texts. You know, Peter elsewhere in his letter is going to say, Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. Well, we look at Peter and we're saying, okay, well, Peter, you could have helped us out a little here with making it a little simpler. And I'm being facetious. We know the Holy Spirit had his word just as it was designed for us to see but I have to admit, it was a little easier to construct the flow of this paragraph. And I think you'll see that it, your, your eyes can follow the outline and it's going to be right there in the text for us. So here are the simple steps that Peter lays out for how you can contribute to the pilgrim community. We're all in this together. Number one, you can contribute to the, the body the pilgrim community, the church, as you focus in prayer. Focus in prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's an interesting expression. Not that sober-minded and self-controlled isn't elsewhere in admonitions of the Bible, but they're not in the context of, of how it determines the way we pray. So let's think on this a moment. Our point is focus in prayer, not focus on prayer. 
We're doing that this morning. We're focusing on prayer. But the great obedience to this text means you leave here and this week you focus in your praying. In other words, your prayer is determined by something that we're supposed to think about. So how does Peter instruct us or counsel us to be focused in praying? He says first, be self-controlled. This means have a, have a regulated or a sound mind. Now, in the really stark contrast, this word is used in the Gospels of that maniac we call him of Gadara who could break the chains they'd put on him. He lived in the tombs. And when he's converted by the power of Jesus Christ, people marvel because they see him sitting there, and you remember the expression, in his right mind. So there's the opposites there, the the mania and the control. The the soundness of mind, the rightness of mind, and that comes to us, the Bible tells us, by the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God reigns in a mind that tends to want to explode with all the what-ifs and all the uncertainties and, and even all the lies of past failures and guilt. Well, I'm sure that's ruined them forever and I'll never be able to fix this and Our minds begin to panic. But Peter here is saying, no, no, wait a minute. By the knowledge of God, reign in the mind. Renew the mind. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, would say, "In in the battle of the mind, we don't have carnal weapons. We have spiritual weapons. And in this war, we need to bring captive every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. So there it is, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ must reign in the manic thoughts, the mania, the panic, the extreme, the fear, the uncertainty. Reign all of that in and now pray in focus to the God that we know about. How has he revealed himself to us? Pray to that God. Pray not out of panic and uncertainty, but pray in faith, knowing exactly who God is. We focus in prayer. We are self-controlled. As followers of Jesus Christ, even on a pilgrim journey, even as exiles, even as the minority, we're not supposed to be carried away with emotion, anxiety, hysteria. We're to be controlled. And that comes when we are governed by the knowledge of God, that he is sovereign, that he is good. So self-controlled, governed by the knowledge of God. But Peter says there's another way to focus in prayer, and that's to be sober-minded. And of course, the opposite of this is the idea of drunkenness that is presented in the scripture. So don't be drunk, out of control, surrendered control to to the influence of alcohol, but instead have an alert mind, clear, attentive in the spiritual realm. Be focused, be clear, be attentive 
In other words, be aware of the weightiness of life. If we're, kinda, if we're trying to link sober-minded to our prayers, then that alertness, that clear-mindedness is able to take in news of a mass shooting in an elementary school and somehow grapple with the weightiness of that, with sobriety, with, with a clear head, with a sober mind that recognizes this is what evil looks like. And what is the great hope found in Jesus Christ? There is a sobriety, a clearness, that though life is weighty, truth can prevail. And so these two ideas together, the knowledge of God and the weightiness of life, now will instruct how you pray this week. And it won't be just casual phrases that flow off the tongue. And it's not just thank you for a good day and keep us safe and all that stuff. We actually grapple with who is God. And that controls the way we think. And we have a sober mind. We recognize the weightiness of life. And so we pray. We pray because life is hard but God is bigger than all the hardness of life. You see, prayer is a little more significant than maybe we've been thinking lately. Maybe we got in the rut and Peter is just kind of rattling the cage a little bit and he says, you know what? You better be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You might not be praying as you should if you're letting your mind always be bombarded by the uncertainties and fears and, and you're, you're manic in your thinking. Govern your thought with who God is. I'm not saying that's easy. But Peter is telling us self-control is significant in how it affects your prayers. It, it's no wonder then that this is even part of that work of the Spirit in us the fruit of the Spirit being temperance, this self-control, it is possible by the power of the Spirit. And all this about prayer in the context of we're all in this together. So somehow this morning, there's supposed to be a gleaning from others that you communicate with about the weightiness of life about the uncertainties that are causing somebody to drift into fear and doubt and panic. And now this week, you pray for them. You empathize and weep with them and you feel the weightiness of their lives. But you're taking them before the God who is in control and can pour out his grace to help in time of need. So find those weights and bear them up in prayer. Because Peter says, we're all in this together. Now verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love through forgiveness. So you see that in the text. Above all, love one another and then something about covering sin. So we need to figure out what it looks like to love the people in this room through forgiveness. He begins by saying, above all. Does that mean it's 
like a greater virtue than what he just talked about, praying? Not necessarily. I think this is a reference to that, that broad umbrella command of the scriptures, of love. So Jesus, in his teaching, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? And they were hoping for some answer that would lead to a little loophole and they could say, oh yeah, what about this? And instead of walking into that trap, Jesus answers there in Matthew by saying, this is the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The second command is like to it. So let's connect them together and love your neighbor as yourself. So now love becomes a summary of all the law and the prophets, Jesus says. I think that's how this word about love is above all. It's an umbrella over all the commands, all the requirements. So you may not pray for others in this room this week as you should, that could be a sin, but it would be rightly labeled as a failure to love. You didn't love your neighbor as you should, and you manifested that selfishness by not praying for them. So that's the point there. Above all, this is a broad umbrella command. But then notice a key word. We're to keep loving one another earnestly. Now, admittedly, the word love itself has some kind of sense of earnestness to it. If loving others like Christ loved us is the call, then we can look at Christ who went to the cross and sacrificed himself to the point of death. There's a certain level of intensity there, of earnestness. But this word earnest, it's a beautiful Greek word. And I wish there was some other way to communicate it in the English language other than the word earnest there because, one, we don't use the word earnest much. And, and if anything, we think of it as a certain, like, zeal or intensity. And it is that, but the word here in the original language is helpful. The idea at the root of the Greek word is the idea of stretching, stretching. So in the context of time, that would mean you kind of extend the time. There's some soccer fans in the room. Soccer plays two halves. They're 45 minutes long. But if you know anything about professional soccer players, when they think they're hurt, they just roll around on the ground for a long time faking an injury. Well, the referee in his mind or kind of with a glance at his watch is like, all right, we're going to keep track of how much time they waste and we're going to add that on to the end of the game. And so at the end of 90 minutes, there isn't a horn that sounds and the game is over. Instead, the referee on the sideline holds up a sign and it shows how many more minutes we're going to play. So there'll be like four more minutes of what they call stoppage time because somebody stopped to roll around on the ground to pretend they were injured. They extend the time out a little bit. They stretched it a little further. You go to a fellowship, somebody's house, or hit the meal after church, and you tell your kids, all right, we're leaving in five minutes. We want to get home. And what do your kids know? All right, 25 minutes, we should be out of here, right? 
because mom's going to start talking to this one and then get caught by that one, and the time just gets stretched out. Well, how do you apply stretching out to love? What you're saying here is, yes, you're going to have to love others. And then you're going to be asked to love a little more. And once you think you've loved that person as much as you can love them, I've just had it up to here. Love is going to say, can't you stretch just a little more? Can't you, can't you bear with that person just a little bit more? And you stretch it even further. Why does Peter need to talk about our love stretching? You probably have a good idea. Because life together in the pilgrim community will have its sour moments. People will disappoint you. People will sin against you. So Peter says, you're going to have to be somebody who, even when they think they've stretched their love to the limit, we're going to ask for a little more. It's this way in your marriage. You stood on some platform somewhere and, oh, yes, 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 I'm going to love you till death do us part or until I just get so frustrated that you won't throw your socks in the hamper, right? Nobody says that honestly when you're on the stage holding hands. But in those moments, we start feeling like, when are they going to change? And Peter says, you know what? Maybe just stretch that love a little more. What if you're going to be married to that person for 50 years and they're just not going to change some of their quirks? What are you going to do? You can choose to stretch love a little more or you can choose to be frustrated and bring it up and always have contention. But Peter is saying, if you're willing to stretch your love earnestly a little more, then you can understand how love covers a multitude of sins. He's quoting the Proverbs here. Peter knew his wisdom literature in the Old Testament. But I want us to think of two thoughts here in love covering a multitude of sins. Neither one of these thoughts have to do with, well, let's not talk about that publicly. It's not a hiding sin. So in no way is this covering up like we hear about. If you follow church news, you know recently the SBC released a study about abuse in the church and how it has been handled. In, in obviously, this study was about the cover-ups. Now, in no way is this an indictment of anybody in a Southern Baptist church or to say that all of them don't care about abuse and they all covered it up. It was just showing the fact that at times the church fears sin among the body, and we studied church discipline in Sunday school this morning, and it isn't dealt with rightly in the spirit of we're all in this together. Well, that kind of cover-up is not what Peter is talking about. So what does he mean when he says, in quoting the Psalms, that love covers a multitude of sins? There are two applications. Number one, there is a readiness to ignore what I'll call the small stuff. And by this, I mean the quirks, 
the personality traits, the unfortunate bad habits of people that are always around you in your life. You're annoyed that somebody smacks their gum. Well, those are small things. We're putting them in the small category. There is a sense where love stretches to cover and not force the issue on things that aren't sinful. And it wasn't done out of malice toward you. It, it may annoy you, but there's a sense of application that love can cover those sins. I think we understand that. But just know, I, I don't think that's what Peter is primarily talking about. I think his application of covering sin is tied to the reality of biblical forgiveness. That if we're ultimately going to get along in marriage as young people with parents in the body of the church, if we're going to get along, understanding that life is messy and at times people sin against us, then we'd better start exercising ourselves at forgiveness. You can't keep a list of offenses. And I can just say that while I'm no marriage counselor extraordinaire, the marriage counseling I've done has almost always included somebody that is very ready with a list. And that is what Peter is addressing. Now, let's be honest and recognize that a list is sometimes needed to document problems, to establish patterns, uh, to hold someone accountable. So we can understand a list of offenses, but eventually we must reckon with that list and that person's apparent repentance and hammer out the hard work of biblical forgiveness. Peter is saying, your love's going to have to stretch since it's that stretched out love that is going to cover sin. And I would suggest to you that that sin that has been brought to light, that person has repented, they know they've hurt you, and they're trying to make it right. And it would be wrong for you. It would be a sin for you. You would not be cooperating with Peter's theme, we're all in this together, if you say, well, that's okay. And then you walk away, and it's clearly etched on your list still. So that the next time they do it, in your mind, you're thinking, they always do this. I knew they weren't. I'm sorry, you didn't forgive. That is not biblical forgiveness. You do not want God forgiving as we forgive each other. You had better be resting your faith in that God forgives us in Christ and we are to forgive according to the way God forgives. Ephesians 4, 32. Peter says, keep stretching your love a little further and stand ready to forgive even when people sin against you. You're hurt. You're wounded. And sometimes it's going to feel like them just saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? It seems like that's not enough. They should have to do something. They don't know how much they've hurt me. But God does. And so cast that care on him, but look very godlike to them by extending the same forgiveness that you have received from God. 
according to Matthew 18 in the parable, stop choking your spouse saying, pay me what you owe. Don't do that. Peter says, instead of using your hands to choke someone and demand of them what they owe, instead, start using those hands to figure out, how is my love going to stretch a little further and demonstrate forgiveness? Beautiful word picture. Pretty challenging application. But by God's grace and reflecting on the forgiveness we've received, we can be people who love through forgiveness. How can you contribute to the community since we're all in this together? One, focus in prayer. Two, love through forgiveness. Three, it's in our next verse. Verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality. The idea is share and do it with joy, not with grumbling and complaining. Now, I've got to confess in our household, there's, there's a lot of hospitality that goes on, but it's not often my idea, all right? So some in our household, the adults anyway, hear the show hospitality and, and, then, and th- that's going to happen. Others of the adults in our household have to think, let's do this without grumbling. Uh, and I know we can stereotype extrovert and introvert, but the reality is, Peter is saying, I'm not talking about personality type. Peter's not even talking yet about spiritual gift. He's saying we're all in this together, so all of us must share with joy. So let's look at the sharing first. The Greek word for hospitality is another thing of beauty. It's a compound word, so it took two words and mashed them into one. We've done that in English language as well. So we play kickball, right? That's two words, kick and ball. Compound word. So our Greek word is two words. It's the word friend and the word stranger. And that's the biblical word for hospitality. Treat strangers like friends. Hospitality in the church means you take the stranger, the one who walked in today to visit, and and you try to bring them to a place where they feel like Friends. Now, it doesn't mean everybody who visits here will stay in this congregation and make this their church home, but that's the path that we need to be thinking every time someone walks in the door. How do I make that person feel as at home as I do here? I move people from the stranger category to the friend category. You're hospitable when you treat a a stranger like a friend. Most of you would think nothing of having good friends over tomorrow for hot dogs. That hospitality would flow quite naturally because you understand the friend part of the word. However, if we announced a summer of hospitality, which sounds like you need to have at least one family over, a different family, three different times this summer. June, July, and August. Find a family and have them over. For some, you would say, well, we're, we're not the kind of people that entertain, or I'm not real good at that. Um, and so you'd 
kind of very quietly declined to do that. And since we weren't at the back door checking the box, how many did you have over this month? You know, you'd kind of fly under the radar and, and just wouldn't participate in that. But that would mean you don't understand biblical hospitality. Because at times we would say, well, I'm not going to serve a new family at church hot dogs. And I would say, why not? Why not? The Bible doesn't say give them steak. Hot dogs are fine. The Bible says make them feel like they're not on the outside. Make them feel like they belong. This is why we tell people that we really know, and sometimes the ones we don't, make yourself at home. Or the old Spanish welcome, right? Mi casa es tu casa. My house is your house. Help yourself. It doesn't mean you won't ever serve them, but it means don't hesitate or feel awkward or feel like an outsider. Hospitality. It's the sharing, yes. It is giving stuff, sure. But at its core, it's what are you doing to make somebody feel like they are a friend, a family member? And if it's food, great, serve it. If it's just iced tea and you hang out on the back porch, do that. If it's a little bit of lingering in the lobby, do that. But make someone feel like they have a place, not only in the church collectively, but in your heart and mind. Treat strangers like friends, Peter says, but then he adds, without grumbling. I would simply say, don't consider the cost. I know wisdom in most cases is consider the cost, count the cost. But when it comes to hospitality, don't be thinking of, oh man, I had somewhere to get and I got stuck talking to that person for 20 extra minutes. My family was in the car. I know that happens and it can be an inconvenience. But instead of just focusing on the inconvenience, think about, but you know that 15 minutes, I, I, I think there was a connection, a bridge was built. That's what the Lord had for that Sunday. You missed the first quarter of the Chiefs game because you got stuck talking to someone, right? Don't complain about that. I'm not saying it's wrong to watch the Chiefs game. I'm just saying it might be wrong if hospitality encroaches on what you wanted to do and it produces grumbling. Do it with joy. Peter says, what do we often hear about hospitality? We don't have time. I just don't believe it. Because I've said things like that about why I shouldn't do something I should do. And it very, very infrequently is it true. We don't have time that we want to share with others. It was time we wanted for ourselves. And we can boast on family time which can be good, and it may be smoke because we just don't want to reach out, and it's harder to make friend or st- uh, strangers to be friends than it is to just be friends. So be very careful with the thoughts that come into your mind that would resist why you should make your house somebody else's house, all right? Show hospitality and don't consider the cost. Don't Don't factor in what you had to give up 
Don't do that. Work on some hospitality this week, perhaps even as the service concludes. One last way to contribute to the pilgrim community, serve as stewards. We don't use the word steward much. You might find it in a legal document, trust, a will. You might find it when you're on the airplane, a steward or stewardess. But our text is clear. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. A steward is the one who is asked to manage something in the place of the boss. So you can think of it as a manager, a supervisor. You have been asked to manage some part of the grace that God has given to the local congregation here. He's given you a piece of his grace. It's his varied grace given to you because we're all in this together. If you pocket that, keep it to yourself and don't contribute, don't buy into this spirit of we're all in this together, then that very grace is missing from the wellness of the body. That's Peter's point. So much so that he's getting kind of worked up. As each has received a gift, the word used, that verb isn't in the Greek. It's like he just skipped right over it. He says, as you have each received a gift, serve with it. Do something. He just like explodes and he misses some of the grammar. You have a gift. Where is it, Peter is saying? You're a steward of it. God gave it to you. That's how important you are. And this isn't like some kind of self-help point of the sermon and you're a somebody deep down within and look within and see. No, it's God has been good to you in Jesus Christ. And by his spirit, he has graced you with something that is to be used for the common good of the church. It is not pop psychology to say you as an individual are part of God's essential plan for my well-being as a part of this church. He goes on to list broad categories of gifts. The, the word gifts, if you're going to speak, make sure it's something that has to point people to God, his word, and the doing, the service gifts. And we could go to other passages and find different lists and what they might look like. But the point is, whether it's in the word category or the serving, doing category, get busy. But the word gifts should be about God's word and the doing gifts should be about God's strength in you doing that. So that, he says, all of the glory goes to God. So as we serve as stewards, bear two thoughts in mind. One, there are gifts to share. You have one and it's for sharing. We call them spiritual gifts. I like grace gifts, but that's redundant because the word is grace, charis. Grace, but in that form of it, it's a gift. So you have a spiritual gift. You have a kindness from God in his grace. Use it for the body. Share that gift. And then we should note that there is glory to give in order that in everything God may be glorified. In every possible way that a gift could help someone else, God is in that. That's his work. 
That's his claim to glory. Because apart from Christ, we too could take up guns and kill people. Apart from Christ, every imagination of the thoughts of our hearts would only be evil continually, Genesis tells us. But by the grace of God, we are now a people who not only love like God has loved us, but we keep stretching out that love. And we keep seeing how God has been gracious to us. I want to use whatever he's given me to share with others. That is God's work in you. So that in everything that happens in the church, God receives glory. This also means it's not only a tragedy that your gift wasn't used to help someone else in the church, but if you're not contributing you're saying, I'll pass on the opportunity to glorify God. But who wants to say that? Nobody's going to check that on the invitation card. How did the Lord work in your heart? Well, I've chosen to not give glory to God. But in refusing to extend ourselves and to share His grace that's been poured into us, we're saying, not in everything, Because in this seat, no. Let's not do that with our actions. Let's make sure we know we've received God's grace. And so in some way, shape, or form, I'm going to figure out how to share that with others so that God is glorified. To him belong glory and dominion. So let's be a people that give it to him. We're all in this together. Built into that truth is encouragement. You're not alone. The design is the whole body together. But built into this, we're all in this together, is also responsibility. This week, to focus in prayer. To love through forgiveness. To share with joy. And to serve as stewards. All so that we could say in everything that happens in Grace Bible Church and in my life as a follower of Jesus Christ, in everything, God is glorified. So Heavenly Father, take these clear and simple truths from your word and show us the path of obedience this week. It's not complicated, but we know that the devil is good at dismantling any sermon we hear and tempting us to wander from the truth. We long to be doers of this, your word, that we have heard this morning. So help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.